Mark Hamill milked me. There we go. That might be the title of the episode. <laughs> and that's a fact. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm talking to Derek Arnold, an incredible creature performer and puppeteer who helped bring to life so many wonderful aliens in the recent Star Wars films. Pow, the Thylus Siren, the Lugabeast, the list goes on and on. This is Talking Bay 94, episode 133, Derek Arnold. How did you start puppeteering? How did you start performing? What were your like initial reasons to do this and to be a part of this world? I originally trained as an actor in classical Shakespearean theater in Toronto. So I spent three years intensively doing a lot of Shakespeare, a lot of classical theater, a lot of Marlowe, a lot of that stuff. My acting background is steeped in words, in iambic pentameter and patterns and prose and all of that kind of stuff. I was very physical and I always have been. So my mom and my dad put me, my brother, and my sister into karate as early as we could. We weren't rich. We weren't poor. I grew up in a very rough area in the town that I grew up in in Canada. God bless them. My parents worked, worked you know, their life to provide us to be better than them. This is my father always said, I don't want you to become a product of your environment. And I remember I graduated high school and I applied to become a police officer. I applied at three different universities. And I was accepted at all of them for criminology and stuff like that. And I remember driving to my part-time job I worked in. Like, do you guys have New York fries in America? Uh-uh. If you go to a mall, it's one of those things in a food court. And it does fries. It does like gourmet fries or whatever. That was like one of my first jobs. I worked in like food courts. And my dad was driving me there. And he was like, what are you doing? I was like, what? He's like, why are you becoming a cop? And I was like, well, it's a good job. Like there's security, you know, it's like helping the community. He's like, Derek, every hour you have that is spare, you're in place, you're doing your theater. Cause my parents aren't, my parents were never artistic and neither is my family. My dad worked as a postman and he's retired now. And my mom worked job to job. And my dad was like, look, I haven't worked my whole life for you to end up like me. That's not what I want. I want you to be better than me. And I don't want you to become this. Do what you love because tomorrow you're going to wake up and you're going to be 65. And what are you going to have to show for it? He's like, I work paycheck to paycheck. He's like, he's like, go to acting school. My dad convinced me to become an actor. And my mom's always been like the best supporter in the world of it. So I went to theater school, become an, become an actor. But they always did that. My brother, he's my older brother. He owns a few karate clubs. His wife's a dancer, so they own dance schools and the karate clubs in Canada. My sister's an electrical engineer. They were like, don't do it. Do what you love. If the money doesn't come, you know you can survive because we've been poor our whole lives. If you're poor, but at least if you love what you're doing, you, lo you love what you're doing. So it was like a real like brain bomb 
awakening. I went and trained at a classical conservatory school, conservatory, and I was burnt out after three years. <laughs> I was like 12 hours a day for three years. And I said to my dad, I'm done. And he went, take a year off, man. Just go and travel. He's like, you're 20, you're 23. He's like, you got your whole life to work. And so I did. I went to LA. My brother was living in Los Angeles at the time. I, I went, ironically, not to act. And I spent a year surfing. And then I reconnected with my old high school drama teacher that was living in England. And he was like, you should come to London because they're doing some really cool theater out here. And I was like, yeah, why not? What do I got to lose? So at 24, I moved to London. For the first time in my life, I felt at home. I decided to not go back to Canada. I was like, cool, I'm going to live here. Four days later, I met my wife. My friend was directing a show and I saw her at an audition. I was like, she's pretty fit. I thought when I moved to England, I thought I was going to be the best thing in the world. I thought I was like, they're going to love me. And they hated me. <laughs> They're like, you got you got the wrong accent, dude. <laughs> you sound like an American and we're not. I just really just pushed at it and slogged at it. And I started to realize that I wasn't getting the jobs that I wanted over here because I didn't have the accent. Why hire a guy that was pretending to be when they have 20 guys that look like me in the room that are British? And I'm really bad at accents. Horrible at accents. I'm really bad at even a Canadian accent. It's all by happenstance. I heard that they were taking a show called War Horse, which started at the National Theatre in England. It just had a successful run. It was still running in the West End here, which is Broadway. And they had brought it to Broadway and it won a whole bunch of awards in Broadway, which then opened it up to the world and they were bringing it to Toronto. So I called my old agent from Toronto. I said, dude, get me an audition. Flew back to Canada, got an audition, didn't get the job. And I was like, ugh. And I remember... Failing at that audition was like the best fail of my life. And I got back to England and my buddy, my, my high school drama teacher was like, email them and say, thank you. And I was like, no way. That is weird. And a bit like stalkery. He's like, dude, email them. I was like, no, he's like, do it. I just emailed him and I said, thanks, man. I was like, look, I live in England. I live in London. If you're doing any work in the future that you think I'm suitable for, like I'd love to be considered. I'm not even lying within an hour. The guy emailed me back and he was like, didn't know you live in London. He's like, sorry, it didn't work out in Toronto. They're recasting for the West End in London. I'll put, I'll put you up for it. And I'd been trying for three years to try and get seen for it in London. And it's that crazy thing. It's not what you know, it's who you know. But it's who you know that gets through you gets you through the door. And it's what you know that keeps you in the room. I auditioned for it in London. Long story short, I didn't get it. <laughs> Which then I was like, oh my goodness, I'm going to cry. <laughs> And my wife, I remember at the time, she was just my girlfriend. She was in Australia doing a job. And she was like, just stay at it. Just stay at it. And I was like, oh. And it was like a movie. It's like, you can't write this stuff. And I was like, I'm done. I've been here for like four years, three years in England. I've got no work professionally. I was like, I'm done. Day, I'm not even lying. Hand on heart. The next day, I got a call from the casting director at Warhorse. And they're like, we've had an injury. Can you come in and learn the show? We, we wanted to sign you, but nobody left. Everybody stayed on their contract. Nobody left. So I went in and learned the show in three weeks. And that was it. That was the game changer. That was my way into Warhorse, which sort of introduced me to puppetry because I'd never done any puppetry before. And it didn't matter what you sounded like, what accent you had. <laughs> it just mattered if you could, you know, rub your tummy and pat your head at the same time. I kept that ethos of just asking and just knocking on doors. And I emailed a couple of other companies. And sure enough, one company that I emailed was doing another job. And they happened to be doing the Olympics for the 2012 summer London opening ceremonies. And I met a guy in that job. And a year later, that guy called me and he was like, are you still in Warhorse? I was like, yeah, I think I'm out leaving. And he was like, I'm doing a job. Can you come and help me out? Because we're building a puppet 
on this job that's sort of like Warhorse. It was Force Awakens. And then I just went, I'm going to lean into the puppetry. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is it now. This, this is working out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lean into it. <laughs> it's these connections that have really carried through, uh, obviously, uh, your work with Tom uh, Wilton and then Brian Herring, who is... Who... Brian Herring was the guy that I met on the Olympics that connected me because he was the coordinator on Force Awakens. He was BB-8, right? And they were doing the Lugabees, which is built uh, the horse and war horse. Lugabees, that's one of the first times in in that Force Awakens movie you kind of see a, a Star Wars thing. You're like, oh, like, we're watching Star Wars. So they built the Lugabeast and Hapabor at the same time. They called the Hapabor the big beast and the Lugabeast the little beast. We don't really find out their names until Pablo publishes the book. And then we go, we, 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 we get there on day one and we flip through the book and go, oh, my name's Lugabeast. Right. <laughs> Better learn how to spell this for the autographs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, try, try spelling Pow's full name <laughs> from, from Rogan. I was like, come on. Pablo, really? And, and fair enough, he put my name in it. My name, Derek, is in the name. So yeah, so we always called the Little Beast. And it, it was a six-month development. Like, it took six months to develop it. Because originally, it was going to be like like the feet of a, a, an at-at or an AT-AT, however you want to fight about how you say that. And it was supposed to be on, like, the ice planet at the end. What it was, oh, where are they? Star Killer Base. And then it changed to being a sand thing. It was supposed to be robotic. And then it was, like you know, half animal, half robot. And then we were in the desert and it was like, and then I remember Neil going, is this going to get heavier? Is this going to get heavier? And I remember originally I worked with Brian Herring on that. Brian was in the front and I was in the back. And Brian's like, I'm not going to do this on the day. Like I'm doing, I'm doing another character. So, but we're just developing this at this point. So we just need your input on how to build this. Steve Wright, a legend in his own right, unfortunately passed away. He, he's, I mean, the, the man has a legacy in himself, like working on the, like the Harry Potter films. And he, I think built Yoda in Return of the Jedi. Sadly, passed away before he should. Him and another gentleman. Oh my goodness, what's his name? We pride ourselves in CFX on always knowing everyone's name. Steve and Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy. Uh, <laughs> bless those guys. Every week we would come and go, change this, alter this, and alter this. And then Brian stepped out to focus on BB-8 and Tom Wilson stepped in. Luggy Beast is mine and Tom's sort of child. It's like our firstborn. It was a crazy ride. And I sort of think we look back on that as fondly going, that was such a lovely character to be in. I would never, ever do it again. I think in the end, it weighed close to like 250 pounds in the desert in 51 degrees Celsius, which I think is like close to like 130 degrees Fahrenheit. Like it, it's like a billion degrees like the sun, it was stu. You had to wear sunglasses because the reflection off the sand was so bright. It would just blind you. So yeah, the Lugabees was like sort of our, our first child, mine and Tom's first child, where we sort of, at one point I remember like, we famously say like, you, you have to stop recording sound because we have about a 20 minute lifespan before the lactic acid builds up in our muscles and we start like physically shaking, like after about 20 minutes, your, your sort of muscles freeze up, but you can't, you can't say that to, to JJ Abrams and Tommy Gormley and, and 150 crew that are sitting there waiting because they're, they're using the sun. Cause we were doing it on um, the setting sun. So we would like stop recording audio, record all your audio in the first 20 minutes, and then just let us scream and cry literally for the next 20, because, cause that's the only way we can, we can do this is, is to just yell because to lift our arm, it, it just seemed incredibly painful. And then it was like over filmed over three days. So we would stop filming after 45 minutes and then we would just go back to the hotel 
sit in the sauna or the hot tub and then recuperate from the I make it sound like we were went to war. Like people who actually went to war fight a war. We were sitting in a beast, like being treated by by luxury and like <laughs> like prospectively, it was hard. <laughs> you have to go to your happy place because when we were there for the six months prior Lugga Beast, Katie knew it. She's the puppet master. Katie knew it is the unsung hero of CFX. Neil is the face of CFX. He's the genius behind it. He's the guy that has all these mad ideas that everybody just sort of goes, we can do this. Katie has been by his side forever and a day and she's directs everything. I remember just like being with them and just going, we, we have to do this. And being with them for six months and prepping, Katie and Neil were like, look, you guys are here. Do you want to, do you want to try on some other aliens? And that's how like Tom got into Buford. This like sort of yellow droid and I got into Voberdan. And that sort of delved into continuously more work for us on Force Awakens. Jake Hunt Davies like really setting the tone for the sequel trilogy and those movies. And then you really personifying them. And like you said, Voberdan, like you look at it and you're really like, yep, Star Wars. It's a gnarly character, man. The face sits on top of my head. So if I'm I'm, I'm looking at you right now, Voberdan's head would be looking at the sky. So in order for me to create that arch, I had to literally look at the floor because his face was on my head because Jake was like, it's just creates a lovely disproportioned arch that's not human-like. I think it was A.D. Parrish who built the, the mech of it. And Everyone agrees because uh, Vober was not supposed to speak in episode seven. Vober is just, he was just there. The way they mecked the mouth, we call it the ooey sound. So if a, if a, if an animatronic face can do an ooh sound, which is like your lips sort of like ooh, and it can do an e sound. If you have those two basic movements on a mouth, you can create a lot of lip structure to create conversational tones. Other than like, if you don't, you get the very Muppet, like rah, rah, flappy mouth. But if you can get the lips to go ooh ee, it creates a plethora of expressions in an animatronic face. Vober Dan had the ooh ee sound, but it also had nostrils and it also had like eye blink. When you look at it in A.D. Parrish, who designed and built the mech for, for the head, he was also on set doing the animatronics. And he's a bit of a legend in himself. It created the thing and we were just doing it on set. And, 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 and JJ said, we have to use that. That's beautiful. And we just made, he just made up some lines on the day. Uh, it wasn't even scripted. And that's the, that's the great thing about being a producer and the writer of a, of a movie. And that's how Wilberdan got, got a, a few lines in the movie. And I think AD was over the moon because puppeteers and performers are the, literally the last cog in the machine. So you have Jake Lunt-Davies who designs it. You have Niels whose brain is working at overdrive to try and coordinate all of this. Then you have the fabricators and the mechies who build and spend months and months and months and months. And then we just come in and steal the glory <laughs> and, and reap the benefits for life. For us, it's like, as performers, at least for me, it's, it's important to mention A.D. Parrish and Jake Lunt-Davies and... The fabricators, I think the fabricator for Boberdan was Fiona Barnes. And it's important for us to remember those things, to name them, so that when we do interviews, that they get they get more glory because they they spent months and months on, on it before we even stepped into it and and essentially made their lives hell. <laughs> like, I'm too hot. I need some water. <laughs> 
Make this more comfortable for me. Moving from Force Awakens, which Rogue One um, also holds up incredibly. Uh, there's a weird thing going around Twitter, which you're not on. Every like week, every two weeks, there like trends. Rogue One trends, and it's like Rogue One is underrated. And I'm like, who's underrating Rogue One? Like, I feel like everyone, no matter who, who, how old they are, is like Rogue One rocks. <laughs> like Rogue One, very good. This I think my wife said to me the other day, and my wife is, she supports me to no end, obviously, because she puts up with me, but she's not the biggest sci-fi geek. We don't go out and watch sci-fi movies. I have to sort of fit them in around her schedule and she's not, like, when she's working, I go, oh, I can watch, <laughs> I can watch something. She said to me the other day, she goes, I heard on BBC Radio 2, which is a, a radio show here, she's like, it was trending, like, Rogue One, like, is one of the best, you know, arguably one of the best new Star Wars movies. And I was like, I oh, really, she's like, you were in that. And I was like, yeah, I was in the mall, honey. <laughs> but even she noticed like, if it's such a nostalgic movie, that doesn't, not that they do it. So, you know, I don't, I don't know how to phrase this. It. Not that they crowbar in Easter eggs now, but they sort of do. Like you watch the Disney Plus shows and they're amazing. The Book of Boba, Obi, um, you know, whatever Obi-Wan's going to be and Mandalorian. And they're beautifully shot and the music is amazing and the editing is lovely and it's so steeped in Star Wars history. And you're like, oh, there's a this and there's a that. And that's, that's you know, a nod to the Clone Wars. Whereas I think Rogue One was just like a movie set in the 70s again. They just went, let's just make it. And uh, I think that's sort of, the success of it, you know, looking back on it with, you know, rose tinted glasses, it was a big success of it was, was the fact that they just, they really, everybody had a mustache. <laughs> like, you're going to be in this movie, you got to have a mustache. Well, let's talk about your pal still, incredible, just an incredible design and just like such a immediately Star Wars, immediately Star Wars. And then uh, uh, Borgullet, I'd love to dive into as well. But with Pow specifically, again, like for an alien that really has screen presence and screen time and is part of this crew what was your process of delving into that character how visible were you how, how could you see so originally on paper there was about 13 or 15 of us that did Borgullet. so essentially you get the phone call and you're like okay yeah we're moving on to the next movie Th these are the sort of characters that we have you down for and originally it was going to be Borgullet, pow and one of the Mon Calamari on the ship. So originally I was thinking I was supposed to be one of the Mon Calamari. And then I got a call from Katie, knew it, who was like, look, Pow has now sort of taken an elevated position within the group. He's part of like the core team along with, what's his name? Bistan? Bistan, Bistan, yeah. So Bistan and Pow have sort of taken an elevated group. They're part of the core rebel group, which means you're not really going to be able to do the Mon Calamari. It's like, I'm, I'm happy with one. I don't need three. That's gluttony. I don't need an extra large fries. I'm happy with one. So Borgullet was the first thing we shot. First two weeks of filming. That was Borgullet. And that was a bit mental because it was like this 15 person puppet that again, Tom, Tom Wilton was in. I'm going to literally try and name everybody and it will be impossible. Yeah, name, name 13 other people. Yeah. Tom Wilton, Lynn Robertson, Bruce, who was later one of the puppeteers for Dio, Phil Woodfine, who did the animatronics for Pal's face, me, Aiden Cook, who's a legend in himself, who's done a plethora of Star Wars characters, including 
Two Tubes, maybe? Two Tubes, yes. Liam Cook, I think, was on that. Brian Herring and Dave Chapman, who are both BB-8, were on that. Pat Comerford, who's done a load of Star Wars characters as well. So we spent two weeks on Borg Gullet with that. And that was a bit of a mental shoot because Borg Gullet was just a crazy character. It's just like this 15-person octopus with literally half a ton of water in the back of it. And I remember it because half of it was submerged under stage because we the state the set was about four foot high. And I remember the, the guys that built it, they're like, you see that gray knob there? And I was like, yeah, they're like, if you knock that, that's the safety now. That's the safety valve to, to release a half a ton of water. And I'm like, well, why'd you, why did you make that plastic? And why'd you put that beside me? And they're like, well, we got to have a safety valve. And it, it's so shocking because in the movie, you don't even see half a ton of water in the back of this, this thing. It was there. So while we were doing that, we were fitting POW. POW originally had a bit of a bigger presence on screen than what he did in the final edit and that's fine but i remember just fitting it and from like day one we're like oh right because in voberdan in the animatronic head i could i could see the floor i could see all of the all of the floor because i'm looking down at the floor the whole time in pow it was like nothing and it was made of silicon because it had to look camera ready and fill so there was no air coming into the head so they had to build this air filtration system on his belt that pumped air into the head constantly if you see anything if you see any of the behind the scenes things you'll see there's one thing i think pablo was interviewing neil about it and you see me sort of in the background talking about it but there's these like these tubes sticking up through my neck on my costume and it's like those were the those were the tubes just pumping air into my head so i could breathe and not not pass out because after about 45 seconds with no air you're just like i would have signals or almost like cues with phil who was the external puppeteer that if i sort of like <clears throat> adjusted pow's hat or turned my head to the side he would open the mouth a little bit during a take so that i could get air it was almost like this fascination like how long can i go okay because you close your eyes because so i'd have to close my eyes in between inside the head because there were all the moving mechanisms in front of my eyes which meant i couldn't focus if you have all of these things moving in front of your eyes you can't you physically can't focus your eyes are playing games with you. you're going i have no sense of depth perception so you close your eyes and i'm going okay i'm getting the flashing little lights in my eyes i'm getting the the stars I'm going, okay, I can start to hear my heartbeat in my ears. The heart rate's going up. I'm getting the flashing light. So I know that I'm within a minute or two of passing out. And so you're like, okay, I, I need to give him a cue to open the mouth now or else I'm going to just faint and ruin the tank. <laughs> it's like those weird, uh, this weird morbid thing where you're going, how long can I, can I torture myself? This process of not seeing and having in one ear, you have phil telling you what's happening in the scene and giving you a blow cue we call it a blow cue because he can't talk because recording audio so one blow cue is look to your left like he'll he'll literally go into his mic he has a mic on his lapel so he'll go that's look to my left or which is look to k2so which is seven foot up so we we've we've mapped out my eye lines because eye lines are massively important if you're doing blind eye lines it's like impossible three blow cues is to cassian one blow cues to you know whoever and then in my other ear you have the dialogue of the actors so i can hear what they're saying because the minute they turn on the the servos in the animatronic head you can't hear anything so you have the actor's dialogue and in the other ear you have your blow cues from the puppeteer it's like this sort of rubik's cube of brain analogy you're sort of trying to you know you have seven hurdles you're overcoming before you even start acting and making it look natural without looking 
or so robotic in your movements. It's quite a process, and so you have to go to a happy place because if if you're claustrophobic or you're you're afraid of dark places, it's like you you won't you won't survive. You have to have a sort of weird sadistic <laughs> part of your personality go. Oh yeah, I like being tortured. Part of me is like that is the ultimate goal, just being a background alien on a Star Wars, right? Or when I feel like I'm being waterboarded. It doesn't get any better as far back or as far forward. It's sort of the same. It's like. Whoa. It's sort of the same. Talking about interesting aliens. Last Jedi, Thalos Siren. Mark Hamill milks me. <laughs> Let's talk about that. Let's talk about how that creature worked. The amount of effort, because I watched that documentary where they like are uh, helicoptering it, it helicopter. Is. Incredible. And Love we that. Were, we were so hungover that day. <laughs> <laughs> Last Jedi, so we filmed that in Ireland in a town called Dingle, and they do their own gin. Shout out to Dingle. Shout out to Dingle Gin. It's one of the best gins I've ever had because I'm a gin enthusiast. And they were such a lovely host. And we, because Dingle is so small, they were housing different departments in different places around. And the CFX department got housed in these cottages on a beach about 45 minutes from set. It was just amazing because we were <laughs> we were there by ourselves, but everybody was in their own house. So we would just go to the local pubs and there was only about two or three and they would just do a lock-in with us. So they would close, lock the doors, and that would just be us until... I don't know, 8 a.m. We were in Ireland for about six or seven days and I was only on set for two. It was rough. So the first day we got there, we're like, let's part, because it's Ireland. You're like, you go on location. Usually you go on location to Abu Dhabi or Fort Aventura or, or Jordan. Ireland is like a half hour, 40, an hour away. <laughs> so we were like, we're home. The first day was rough. We locked in and the next day we had to go to set. Me, Aiden Cook, Tom Wilton, Robin Guyver. Everyone else went to film and the four of us had to go to set and just wait for the helicopter to help. The helicopter didn't get there till like 2 or 3 p.m. I remember looking down at Tom and Robin and Aiden who were hungover and I was like, and it was like beach weather and it's Ireland. It didn't rain for like the six days we were there, which everyone was like, this is unheard of. Yeah, they helicoptered it in and, and Pete Hawkins and Andy Calhoun, I think, were sort of like the lead on that. And they had to bolt it in to the cliff. The cliff that they shot it on, like jagged rocks. It was it was a bit crazy. And they had to build the scaffolding all the way down. It was about a, a half hour walk from base camp up the hill and down. So it's like, you go you go to the toilet at base camp because once you got to set you you weren't going you <laughs> was like that was it yeah and so I remember them setting up the day before and then the next day we shot it it's a bit crazy because I remember me and Tom had rehearsed it and we had to climb in and famously very we tell the story of Pete or somebody gave us a scuba knife and they're like it's not gonna happen it won't because you're bolted into the cliff they literally have to check every health and safety aspect of it and so they have to prepare for everything and. The preparation is, if it falls into the sea, we're not going to get to you in time. You're going to sink. So you have to cut yourselves out. And we're like, just holding a scuba knife going, thank you? <laughs> huh? And we were like, never in, like, it was never a point where we were like scared because it was, it was never going to happen. That day, unfortunately, BT, behind the scenes, BTS decided to mic us somewhere. There's a vault of six hours. I think we were in there for a six hours because they're like, once you're in there, you're in there. We're sealing you. We have to glue the neck to make sure that they're, because you, you, we climb through the body and then they put the head on and the neck on and then they seal it and then glue it to make sure that there's no lines on camera. They're like, once you're in, you're in. And they gave us little um, festival urine packs that you could pee in and like some protein bars and, you know, some candy and some sweets. <laughs> We're like, 
cool some water and they're like that's it once you're in you're in and i think we're in there for about six to seven hours and so somewhere there's in the archive of behind the scenes there's six hours of footage of me and tom slowly just going crazy like i think at some point i was like hey what, what spice girl would you be if you could be any Spice Girl, and Tom's my best friend, so we were talking about some crazy stuff. And I just like the, they would come on the they would come on our earpiece going, guys, behind the scene, guys are laughing too loud and they're ruining the take. So you, you guys stop, you guys stop doing it. And we're like, look, we we can't stand up. We're sat in a chair for for six hours. So you tell them to stop. <laughs> we're gonna keep laughing, or else we're gonna go crazy. And I remember saying to Tom, I was like. There's no way this is going to make the film. This is too great. This is nuts. There's no way. This is, there's no way Disney's going to sign off on this. And now they sell the green milk in Galaxy's Edge. They went for it. And I remember sitting in the, in the cast and crew screening looking at Tom going, they did it. They did it. Who signed off on that? <laughs> That's nuts. Bonkers. If you look back at the, the originals, are bizarre like some of them are crazy and the difference between the 80s and now is that there's the internet so everyone has an opinion everyone's a critic it's like well who cares at the end of the day these movies are for 10 year olds 10 year olds love jar jar binks because he falls down and says funny things that's funny i was eight when phantom menace came out and i watched Phantom Menace. And I was like, yep, I love Jar Jar. And then I was Jar Jar for Halloween in October of 99. That's what Star Wars is. Star Wars is fun and goofy and for 10-year-old boys. Or, you know, 10-year-old anybody. But, like, that's what it is. That's what it's for. I bet you 40-year-old, 50-year-old men in the 1977 were being like, what is this rubbish? <laughs> <laughs> this is not real film. This is, yeah. this is nothing. And that's fair to them. <laughs> no one's taking those movies away. They're still there. You can watch them as many times as you want. There's new movies for new people. So take it or leave it. I, I mean, that's my opinion on it all. Let's talk about Solo real fast because you doing so many. And then, again, a bunch of nice Jake Lunt Davies concepts, Jake Lunt Davies family concepts, right, with the Cloud Rider. Oh, Ilo, the big, the big bug eyed. We called her, uh, I always name my creatures women. And it started with Voberdan because before we knew what Voberdan's name was, they called it Beaver. The beaver, the beaver creature, because <laughs> it looked like a beaver to them. And I remember somebody saying, what's his name? And I was like, well, how do you know it's a man? Why can't it be a woman? And they're like, it can be a woman. I was like, it can be. Voberdan is Tina. That's Voberdan's name is Tina. So I remember the ADs used to say on, on episode seven, they're like, um, can we get Tina to set, please? And I think uh, Pow is called Debbie Francis. So they'd be like, can we get Debbie Francis to set? Bug Eyes for Solo was called Mel C. That's for Spice Girls. And it even got onto the call sheet. I got a picture of it that the call sheet was like Mel C. There I go. I was like, oh my God, it's made, it's made the call sheet. I always named the characters off of just, just different females that I know. Because I was like, why, why do I, is there aliens? Why do they need a gender? Like, let's just make them whoever, who cares? Yeah, Bug Eyes was a, was a crazy, crazy concept. Yeah, by Jake Lund's daughter daughter yeah designed it i know we had a really cool costume it's one of my favorite costumes i felt like a ninja and a little less cumbersome with that one i mean that one is a little more like your body plus a mask yeah there was no there was no animatronics it was very aesthetically pleasing which is lovely to perform it because you're like great i can breathe 
I can see and I can move thumbs up and then you get to six eyes which is Martin and you're like I can't breathe I can't see I'm hot because costume have decided to rent a coat from Russia which has like the lining of a bear in it and it's like the most advanced animatronic head they've ever built so I you know an average animatronic head has like 20 motors in it and this one had over 50 and so they were putting ice packs down my back to lower my core temperature so that I wouldn't faint because the servos would heat up so I was at a two-hour window usually once you get in an animatronic head you just go you just you're just in there for the long haul but this had a two-hour window because after two hours the the servos would heat up too much that my head would start to burn so they would need 20 minutes to cool down the head so that I could take a break and it was like two hours 20 minute break two hours 20 minute breaks and thankfully I was sat at a table because I didn't have to navigate a world that alien has like a life beyond solo genuinely everybody on set thought it was CG and it was like not, nothing of that CG it's like it, it like each eye could move independently like a blink Matt Denton who sort of programmed it all him and Sasha Choate I think uh, but Matt Denton was like the lead programmer and he was one of the puppeteers on it. I had a, a servo in the head that followed my movement so that you you would get the six eyes on the side of my head. So if I turned my head to the left, they all wouldn't turn at once because it would look quite robotic. So it had this natural instinct built in that. So no matter what angle I built, I turned my head, it would have a little bit of a delay and an organic move to it to make it look natural. Like a gyroscopic sort of. Yeah, it was so advanced. And then Matt could override the system to control one eye and let the other five eyes do other things or control two eyes or just let them all go or just flip on a switch and let it go all organically and just do its own thing. It was another puppeteer, Rich Coombs, was doing all of the, the lips and the mouth and the, the stuff because it was just like, it was such a, an advanced head. It, it, for me, it was such a beautiful sculpt and design because he's supposed to be like this pilot. It's such a shame that we didn't get to see him in full. I always tell the story that, you know, Phil and um, Chris, who directed it originally, were like, we, we want you guys to know how to place it back. We we're like, OK. So before we even started filming, me, the guys that did, uh, what's the punch? What's the crab's name? Oh, uh, Thurm Scissor Punch. No? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Andy Heath and Claire Roy Harvey puppeteered that. And then Ollie Taylor, who puppeteered one of the twins, Kieran Shaw, who was at the table. I think he was the alligator. And Alden and Alden and Donald Glover and Jonas for three days sat on A stage at Pinewood. We walked into A stage and there was a sabac table in the middle of the set. Like that wasn't even a set. It was just a, a sabac table. And they were like, this is how you place it back. It takes 20 minutes to learn. And so we made up our own rules. After three days, we just sat there for three days and talked about life. Not even Star Wars. It was great. We just talked about life, just stuff, and played cards. So by the end of three days, we were probably the best back players in the world. And that's what Phil and Chris wanted. They were like, we just want you guys to be so organic with it that you you sort of know what's going on the whole time. And we did, we, we created our own rules for the, we knew the rules of the game and then we finessed it. We created our own little rules and what you could do and couldn't do it. And then by the end of the third day, we were just all cheating. Like it was like, all right, who, who can cheat the most and take all of the cards. So we were really good. And that was one of my favorite, favorite times on sets to have those three days just to chill out and not even work on characters because they're like we don't even know what characters you're playing at this point we don't care we just want you guys to play cards rise of skywalker i cannot find exactly 
who and what you worked on for episode nine. I don't know how much you could talk about. So Volverdam was back. Early on, there was a concept for, and, and that's why I think we can talk about it because Jake has, has and it's in the honor street, the Oracle. So there was a scene at the beginning of the movie where there was this, this thing called the Oracle. And in the script, it made sense. And I remember watching the cast and crew screening and it not making the film. I remember Tom saying, like, how do you feel about that? And I was like, it makes complete sense because it was supposed to be within the first like couple minutes of the movie. It would have, there was like two pages of dialogue. And in The Rise of Skywalker, the first, the first 30 minutes is nonstop. Yeah. So I think if they added the scene, this is my, this is my take on it. I think if they added the scene in it, it would have jarred with the momentum that they wanted to take. And I think they realized that they would have been like, oh, we just stopped. Like, two minutes in and have like a lot of dialogue and then pick it's is such a but again it's such a nuts crazy design it was this big red baby's head with a spider that crawls on top of it and talks it was like what and at first they were like oh we're not going to film it we're not going to it was one of the last things we filmed on the movie and they're like oh we're going to film it it was one of the last things we filmed it was like january i was like oh we're going to the water tank stage and they're like no we're going to black park black park is a big forest behind pinewood they're like they're going to set it submerge it in the lake i was like in the actual lake it's january and they're like yep so then they had to corner off a section of the lake we all had to get like thermal suits and we're like just six guys sitting inside the cavern of this baby's head submerged in water with life jackets on trying to puppeteer this spider crawling over this head and i think it was pat comerford and all that doing the dialogue for the head in bonkers and it's such a shame that the guys that create because then it has this huge animatronic hand that lifts out and gives kylo the crystal or whatever it is that he needs and it was such a crazy design and it was like so left field and again i think it's jake's design one of the funnest parts because it was just like a bunch of us having a having a good laugh puppeteering this crazy crazy design and that was one of the last things we puppeteered but there were these twins that me and tom did kindly pablo named after us they, he just took our whole name and just sort of jumbled it together they were originally just before you see lando these sort of twins are walking through the sort of festival and they didn't get seen and so jj was like well let's use them later on and then again they weren't really seen but the guards it was the last day of filming literally the last day of filming me and tom were in these two these they have these dreadlocks it almost looked like a predator ish Thing. And the, the guards for the guys, when the flashback, when they kidnap the mom and the dad, and they have that scene in the ship with one of the other creatures, I forget his name, me and Tom are the, sort of the guards, but you don't really see us. And I remember saying to Tom, I said, we're here on the last day of episode nine. He went, yeah, and I went, we were here on the first day of episode seven. Before we shot the Luggabees, we were sat in a tent while they were setting up the Luggabees set on Abu Dhabi. And Simon Pegg was visiting because he would just he had just got to Abu Dhabi before he'd shot his Ankar Plutt stuff. And he wanted to visit Set because he's a massive geek. We were sat in this easy up, this tent with just me, Tom, and Simon Pegg. And we were just chatting to him just about, you know, life and, and the career and stuff like that. And we said to him, this is our first movie because we were like so young at the time. And he went, really? And we're like, yeah, this is the first thing we're ever going to shoot in a movie. And we're a bit nervous. And he said to us, he goes, well, look, you guys have done something right to get to this position. Just keep doing what you're doing and you'll make it to the end. Don't try. Like, just just do what you do and you'll make it to the end. And he meant, you know, make it to the end of episode seven. I said to Tom, I went, you know, here we are. 
literally at the end, man, at the last day of episode nine. And I was like five movies in, like, who would have thought in 2013, talking to Simon Pegg, we would end up here. And he's like, yeah, it's a bit bonkers. They're in the, the encyclopedia book, but they're not really in the film. And then there was another character I did that was about five hours of prosthetic makeup. I did the prosthetic makeup every day for two weeks and they didn't shoot on it once. Whoa, what? I was in the makeup trailer in, five, in prosthetic makeup every day. It was night shoots. It was the scene with Bubba Frick, that whole village, that whole village scene. And they just never got to us. And I was like, cool. The Oracle scene is like, fingers crossed, maybe they put it in the deleted scenes for the Blu-ray or something. I will get it eventually because it's there and it's so cool. And they've put it in the comic books, like it exists, like it's in canon, and it's like people know about it. It's not like a secret secret, you know, people know about it. It was shot. We're going to see it, and it's going to be so cool. It was so well written, and, and like just sort of the way, it, like you just sort of see this baby, like what's a red big baby alien head doing? And then all of a sudden this alien crawls up from behind its head, and you're like, what the heck? And then it starts talking, and you're like, what's going on? What's going on? I know that you've worked on stuff that you probably can't super talk about. But maybe just a general picture over the past year or two and, and where people can see what you've been doing next. I've definitely continued on a Star Wars journey and hopefully people will see that on Disney Plus at some point this year. I don't think I'm breaking NDAs by saying I worked on Andor, but in the context of how I worked on it and what I worked on it, we'll see. I'll see. I don't know. Jurassic World Dominion, I was a part of. Uh, and again, the context and what I worked on, you know, we'll see. I don't even know. And there's another Disney Plus series that I worked on. Those are all like practical sense. And then me and Tom Wilton, a guy named Robin Guyver, we work what we call reference puppetry. What we found out early on was that there's a type of puppetry that for Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, we've done all three movies. There's a world in which actors don't want to act next to a tennis ball. They want to act next to something they can see feel and look at so we bring in puppets that are to scale that are like a sort of skeleton that you wouldn't really film on because they're going to be cg elements anyways but they're a skeleton form of this puppet and they're built to scale so that you get a true eye line so the actors can see what it looks like how it moves how it interacts with them and at first we thought we were just sort of helping eddie redmayne on the first movie and what we i think realized was that it blends so many different departments the focus pullers, the cameras, the key grips, all love it. VFX love it. The post-production love it because it helps them all see the final picture. When they frame up on something, they're no longer guessing about the frame. They're no longer going, well, let's just go a bit wider just to play it safe. We can bring the puppet in and they can frame it to within an inch because they know that that's a true scale of it. So we've done all of the Fantastic Beast movies. We've done Artemis Fowl. We've done live action aladdin pre-production on a couple of live action disney movies and there's another warner brothers movie that we've done pre-production on as well so that sort of reference puppetry we've done a lot of in the last few years as well so you think oh can puppetry really be a career <laughs> like oh it can <laughs> oh my goodness people actually need it the biggest lesson i've learned and i think you can take this into any job that you have whether you're an accountant or an actor or you know you work in IT I think what I've learned over the years and I'm still a baby at it, is tell people what you want and if you tell people what you want they'll give you a shot you just have to be knowledgeable enough to know when you can deliver what you ask for if you ask for it too soon and you mess it up people will remember that but if you wait until the moment's right 
and you sort of take a chance on it and tell people what you want, surprisingly, they'll give it to you. And if you prove yourself, they'll continue to. And I think that's sort of helped me in the last three years. I've told, I've started to develop an idea of like, I love performing. I love being a super performer. I don't want to be a super performer for the next 30 years, mainly because my body can't take it. <laughs> mainly because I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm getting old. So there's a projection and coordinating films and being behind the camera and helping directors and people like Neil Scanlon and John Nolan, the guys that are leading CFX departments, help them visualize on set because they can't be there 24 hours a day. They have more important things to worry about. So you go to those guys and go, this is what I want to do. Surprisingly, sometimes they listen. Sometimes you, you just got to be brave enough to deliver it because if you can't, if people will only remember your last performance. <laughs> they don't care what you've done in the past. They will only remember your last performance. This performance has been wonderful. Thank you for taking the time and telling these stories. We'll say it here on the podcast. Normally I'll do it at the end, but thank you to Brian Balance, a hero Brian Balance for connecting us. Interesting podcast. Uh, uh, listen to that because that's that's how people actually get interviewed as opposed to... And listen to him because he hates promoting himself. He hates being the guy that goes, oh, look at me. I, I... No, Brian Balance is a bit of a dude. He's a legend. Listen to his podcast. Yeah. I'm like, dude, list, like, just promote yourself. Everyone. And he's like, oh, Instagram was made to promote you. Everybody promotes their lifestyle, regardless if they're, if they want to make, look happy on a beach or make their meals that they cook look amazing. Everybody promotes an idea of who they are and what they want. And Brian Balance doesn't do it enough. Brian Balance, we're calling you out. End of this episode. Promote yourself. We love you, man. You're the best. And I'm happy we could do this because you were my very first Star Wars interview in Dallas, Texas. I've always said I've owed you a proper interview, man, because I like I was so green. I was so new at that interview. And I just like said what I needed to say. And I was like, I needed to. Yeah, man. I'll link the written interview in the show notes just so people can kind of compare both. But this has been just the best and hope we get to see each other in person soon. But thank you again. And anytime, knock on the door. I will always answer and talk about anything. Thank you so much again to Mr. Arnold for his incredibly generous time and stories. Thank you as well to my producer, Jason Kozlovich, and my editor, Alex Mirabal. We will be having that live panel at Star Wars Celebration on the podcast stage with a special guest at 11 a.m. on Friday, 5.27. And we'll see you there, please. Uh, if you can leave a five-star rating and review of the show, it means a lot and really helps me out. And until next time, stay tuned, leave that five-star review, and may the Force be with you.